There comes a time in innovation when you realise you might have taken on something a bit too big. No matter how hard you throw yourself into the challenge, creating value from your idea is going to need a little help. Changing the world or even a small piece of it takes a lot of push. That's the moment when you realise you need complementary assets. That's the who else and the what else pieces of your innovation jigsaw puzzle. It's a challenge at the very beginning. How to put together a network of people and resources to bring your idea to life. But it's an even bigger challenge when it comes to scaling innovation. How to get widespread adoption of your best things since sliced bread innovation. That's something which Otto Rohrwedder, the inventor of sliced bread, or more precisely the machine that enabled it, it's something he came to understand. He spent 15 years working to develop and scale his invention and set up the Macro company to launch his great idea, only to see it arrive with more of a whimper than a bang. The bakers to whom he tried to sell it were underwhelmed. They thought the machine too complex for everyday production. It was bulky, took up precious space, and they weren't convinced of the need for it anyway. Teetering close to the edge of bankruptcy, he finally persuaded a local baker, Frank Bench, to invest and install the first machine. On July the 7th, 1928, the first loaf of commercially sliced bread was produced by the Chillicote Baking Company of Missouri and sold under the brand name Clean Made. And while bakers had been sceptical of the benefits, local families in the Midwest were much more enthusiastic. The Constitution Tribune, the local newspaper, put it, so neat and precise are the slices and so definitely better than anyone could possibly slice by hand with a bread knife that one realises instantly here is a refinement that will receive a hearty and permanent welcome. Within two weeks, bread sales from the bakery had increased by 2,000%. The idea began to take off across the country and two years later, the New York-based Continental Baking Company began using Rohrvedder's machines to build an entire business around sliced bread. Their product, Wonder Bread, and the accompanying marketing campaign helped lift awareness to a high level. By 1933, only five years after the launch of the original machine, by 1933, almost every bakery in the United States had a slicing machine and 80% of the bread produced in America was sliced. Now, Otto isn't alone. Many innovations which ultimately scaled successfully spent a long time in the doldrums. Great ideas which drifted because of the lack of partners to give the required momentum. J. Murray Spangler's invention of the electric vacuum suction sweeper nearly wheezed its last before it could make it into everyday home use. It was only when he connected with William Hoover that that venture took off. And Mark Twain's enthusiasm for the typewriter was that of an early adopter. 
but the only way Christopher Scholes and his colleagues could get their machine to a widespread market was by teaming up with the experience of the Remington Company, who understood mass production, marketing, logistics and all the other complementary assets that they needed to scale their innovation. And Earl Tupper's brilliant bit of alchemy in turning black sludge waste from oil wells into brightly coloured polypropylene storage vessels signally failed to impress American families. Until the link-up with Brownie Wise, who brought her social marketing skills literally to the party. Home demonstrations via a social get-together not only accelerated sales, but also laid the foundation for a powerful new addition to the marketing repertoire. So, scaling innovation is a multiplayer game. We've learned that to create value at scale needs a network, but importantly one which goes beyond the sum of its parts. Systems have emergent properties, but these only emerge if there's an organising energy to enable that process. And they need to share a common purpose, reflected in the current discussion of innovation ecosystems, a concept which comes originally from biological science and refers to the complex of a community of organisms and its environment functioning as an ecological unit, all working together. Now that concept's been applied in many branches of natural science with the same focus on an interdependent collection of elements with a shared goal or purpose. For example, in geography, an ecosystem is a geographic area where plants, animals and other organisms, as well as weather and landscape, work together to form a bubble of life. Every factor in an ecosystem depends on every other factor either directly or indirectly. Now, it's pretty clear that ecosystems of this kind don't just happen. In the physical world, they take millions of years to settle into a viable pattern. And in the world of organisations, it's going to involve much more than just assembling a set of components. It'll need active management to secure those emergent properties. Now, systems of this kind aren't just a challenge in the world of commercial innovation. In fact, social innovation, making changes to create a better world, requires even more attention to assembling ecosystems which create value. Take the World Food Programme, one of the agencies within the United Nations which tries to help deal with the severe and age-old challenge of making sure people get enough to eat. They've got a long history of innovation, and recent examples include the Optimus programme, which aims to improve efficiencies on the supply chain, which eventually makes it possible to feed a hungry child, or not. Optimus uses digital tools to help, and it worked as an effective pilot project back in 2015 in Iraq. But scaling it required many players coming on board, working together, not least national governments. Thankfully, the results have moved the needle in the right direction. Optimus now operates in 20 countries, including the Ukraine, Yemen and Syria, reaching close to 7.5 million beneficiaries and with efficiency savings, which equate to more effective food relief, running at over $50 million. 
but that all depends on putting an ecosystem together. So, ecosystems matter in the innovation journey to scale, which introduces three challenges for innovators. First of all, how do you find complementary partners to fit into your system? And then, how do you form them into a coherent value network? And finally, how do you get that value network to perform as an ecosystem? And all three of these are going to rather depend on having a good understanding of who they are, the complementary assets, and the different roles they play. So we need a map and a way of charting our journey to scale using it. Now, we've developed a model for our new book about scaling innovation, which identifies nine core roles which entities in such a value network can play. First of all, you have value creators. Now, they're those who create and develop new value, the innovators. Now, it can be one organisation, could be a partnership or a joint venture, or it could be done across a distributed network. But the key aspect of this creation is that it's new value. At the other end of that, value consumers are those who consume the value which our system creates. Although we often talk of the market, we should remember that some markets are often multi-layered. Our innovation might be used by individuals, businesses, organisations or governments. And for many products and services, those who gain value from it, the end users, may not directly purchase it. That's often the case with public services like education or health. Now, so far, this looks a simple enough story, value creation and consumption. But we have a third group called value captors. That's another key role, which is occupied by those who capture value from the innovation, not by using it, but by being a part of it. That's where the entrepreneur takes their profit from the risks they've extended. It's investors in the company which launches and sells the product or service. And it's all those other supply-side players whose complementary goods and services link together to create the offering. Now, we need these different players to be part of our value network, our ecosystem. But we also need to recognise that they need an incentive. What's in it for them? Now, importantly, this doesn't have to be a financial gain or reward. It could be an investment in learning new approaches or accessing new markets, or it could be about reputation and social identity. Think about the brand building possibilities for companies which help to scale social innovation as part of their ESG story, their corporate social responsibility. Now, these three entities are what we call bookends, the principal players in the value process. But there's a second set of roles played by movers, and they're the entities which enable that process to happen. And they include value conveyors. Value conveyors are players actively involved in the process of adding value to how our solution comes into being and how it's experienced by consumers. Essentially, the value of the innovation grows through the activities they perform. They're more than just channels. Their actions actually increase the value of innovation itself, whether it's a product or a service. They might be supply-side partners upstream or marketing and distribution partners downstream. Either way, we need them in our ecosystem to ensure value gets created and moved to where it can be consumed. 
Brownie Wise's performances at Tupperware parties were the stuff of legend. She had all sorts of tricks, including throwing a container full of tomato soup across the room so it landed on the floor, not exploding. That was to demonstrate the strength of the seal and the absence of messy tomato soup on the carpet played a, an important role in selling the product. But her real contribution to the success of the scaling of the brand was the role she played as a conveyor. She mobilised an army of other women to act as demonstrators and sales agents across the country. She created the mechanisms to move the value across the innovation process. Value channels are passive in the sense that, like roads or railways, they just exist as infrastructure, but they're independent of the nature of the traffic moving them. They're important, necessary elements in scaling, but they're not sufficient to assure scale. Mind you, if they weren't present or if they were disrupted, then value movement couldn't take place, but they're not active elements in the value creation process. It's important to think about them though, not least to explore dependencies and how alternatives might be brought into play. Think about the huge impact of global value flow when the container ship ever given got stuck in the physical channel of the Suez Canal for only a week back in 2021. We're still recovering from that supply chain disruption today. Or think about the way in which the containers on that ship represented a revolution 50 years earlier in the way that the channel of intermodal transportation, that's road, rail, sea, linking together, but changes in the way that operated. Malcolm McLean's innovation of containerization literally changed the world by changing the channel. And sometimes there's a role for value coordinators to help make connections and bring different players together to enact value. For example, a department store offers a physical space in which multiple value creators can connect with value consumers. Street markets, large-scale shopping malls offer similar opportunities. And of course, today's platform businesses like Alibaba, Amazon or Apple build on this model providing digital department stores across which millions of transactions can take place between creators and consumers. They're acting as value coordinators. Now there's a third group of players in our value network, those we call shapers, because they do just that. They shape the potential amount of value that can be created, consumed, moved and captured within a value network. For example, value cartographers are the ones who make the maps. They play a key role in structuring a market and determining how much value is possible within a value network. Examples might be regulators, governments and others, trade unions or influential umbrella organisations. And cartographers can certainly play a major role in accelerating or slowing the journey to scale. Think about current moves towards scaling electromobility. Much of that journey to scale will be influenced by the regulatory roadmap. Policies like subsidies or tax relief on electric vehicles or those which militate against fossil fuels will provide acceleration. For example, the United Kingdom has a target of no new cars running only on fossil fuels by 2035. Value competitors 
compete with us for the attention of value consumers. They might be direct competitors offering a similar product or service, or they might be indirect competitors. For example, Netflix is not only in competition with other streaming services, but with other ways in which people might allocate their attention. Reading, sleeping, looking at their partner while they're having a conversation, they're all competitors. The important thing is that these competitors all shape the context in which value creation and consumption can take place. And lastly, the last of our shapers are value complementers. Now, they're entities which complement the value that an innovation offers. Sometimes they're essential. Thomas Edison's attempts to revolutionise domestic lighting arrangements depended on having something, an electricity supply, into which users could plug his new light bulb innovation. Bluetooth devices like intelligent earphones depend on having the technology available and operating to a common standard. Complementers. So there we have nine different roles which might be present in a value network. Some are obvious. For example, we clearly need a value creator and a value consumer to bookend our model. But even here, the lines can blur. Consumers can also play a role as creators. Think about what Lego has done with its efforts to engage users as co-creators. GIFGAF is a small but highly successful player in the tightly competitive world of mobile phone networks. And its excellent customer service record is in no small measure down to the way in which it's engaged its community of consumers to be creators of that particular kind of value. And some of these roles are less obvious but important. Take cartographers and the ways in which they can make or break scaling efforts. Mobile money is still an exciting new field for apps and hardware players, yet it's been a reality in East Africa for over 20 years. M-Pesa has been a transformational innovation and has scaled around the world, but its early success depended critically on the support of the central bank rather than that's opposition to newcomer ideas. They helped create a fertile regulatory landscape within which mobile money could develop and scale. And sometimes these roles are emergent. For example, the TV and movie industry is increasingly interacting with fans who organise themselves into active communities whose activities and opinions can influence, for better or worse, the scaling possibilities of a core offering. They're complementers. Think about the role played by the Star Wars community, with its conventions, its costumes, its huge online presence. This isn't controlled directly by the film companies. Instead, it exists alongside it, complementing the rate and direction of development. Fans of this kind increasingly play a role in creating new characters and backstories for fringe players who later make it to the mainstream of the media offerings. Think about some of the Star Wars spin-offs. The American professor Robert Jenkins' work at MIT has been tracking the huge influence such fandom has been having on innovation in the creative industries. So it's useful to think in terms of the different roles we need and how they might interact. First, to help us in our hunt for finding partners. But we also need to form them into viable ecosystems. Each system has different configurations, but drawing a system boundary around it, who's in and who's out, is a good starting point. 
Then we have to work with them to create high-performing ecosystems, which is where the hard work really begins. That's about creative relationship building, getting to win-win partnerships. All of which is another story which we'll follow up in a future post.